Our first scripture this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. And the prophet writes, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. This passage gets to the root of what is the purpose of religion. What's the purpose of Christianity? Why do we gather together? Why do we uh, spend time in prayer? Why do we spend time memorizing scripture passages? Because the the truth is that we were created to know and be known by God. We were created to live in a particular sort of way where we are continually living in dependence on God. But because of the fall, uh, because of the sinfulness, uh, because of of the human condition we find ourselves in this place where we are trying to return to that state of dependence on God, where we are trying to return to that state of knowing God and being known. And this is the purpose of religion. It's to help us reclaim what is rightfully ours. It's to help us relearn how to live the way we've been designed to learn. But the prophet Jeremiah is living at a time in the history of the people of Israel where the temple is not being used correctly. Where instead of being a place uh, where the people come and they learn and they are formed and they are shaped and they learn how to trust in God and they learn how to be known by God and to know God, instead, Jeremiah calls the temple a den of robbers. 
Uh, the image here is, uh, um, if you're a Pirates of the Caribbean fan, uh, the island of Tortuga, right? Like this place where all the bad guys can come together and have sanctuary from the outside world. Um, Moss Eisley Cantina, maybe, if you are, um, you know, of, of that kind of persuasion. You know, no more wretched a hive of scum and villainy than here. The people living at the time of Jeremiah are seeing the temple as this sort of get out of, uh, get out of jail free card. It isn't transforming them, but instead it is giving them this false sense of security that no matter what they do, they are fine because they have the temple. It doesn't matter if they are oppressing the foreigners that live in their community because they have the temple. It doesn't matter if they are, uh, if they are disregarding the widow and the orphan because they have the temple. Whereas the temple is supposed to change them so that they care for the foreigner, so that they care for the widow and the orphan. Instead, they are living this dual life where they are Sunday saints and Monday ain'ts. Except that they're Jewish, so it's sundown on Friday through sundown on Saturday, saints, and, you know, everything else ain'ts, but you know what I'm saying. And we see words from God which are really pretty hard, which we really don't like to hear. That if we continue to live, if the people of Israel, and if we extrapolate to us, if they continue to live these unrepentant lives, these lives where they are uh, assuming that their religious practice for an hour a week is going to overcome all the ways that they are sinning indiscriminately through the week, that they will be thrust out of the promise that God has made to them. We don't like these words. We like to sing just as I am. We like to believe that no matter what we do, that we're fine. And in a very real sense, that's true. There is nothing we can do that separates us from the love of God. That is true. When we fail, when we mess up, when we... Uh, make errors when we act out of impulse rather than trusting in God, God will receive us and return and, and we can return to him. But it's something different when we know full well that what we are doing we shouldn't be doing and we keep on doing it. It's something different and maybe you've experienced this. I know I have. Where in our head we think, you know, I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't say this. I know this isn't good for me. I know this is going to hurt somebody. But by golly, I want to do it anyway. 
living the Christian life should transform us so that less and less and less and less we do those things anyway that we know that we shouldn't. And more and more and more and more we learn to trust that the way that God has, has commanded us to live is the way that will truly lead to satisfaction. That will truly lead to joy. But it's not easy. I mean, I would venture to make the argument that not only is it not easy, it is darn near impossible if we're trying to do it with our own willpower, with our own strength, which are with our own uh, savvy. Passages like this should bring us back to the feet of God in recognizing our need for a transformation within ourselves that only He can bring. God has commanded us to live in a certain way because it is the way that will lead to joy. It will lead to fulfillment. It will lead to satisfaction. But man, in the moment, it sure feels like that other thing is going to be more gratifying. And to overcome, to delay that gratification in order to receive the greater blessing that God has for us, we need the Holy Spirit to be working within us. We need the Word of God planted within us so that in that moment the Holy Spirit can awaken it and we can have victory over temptation. We can have victory over selfishness. We can have victory over hate. Our next uh, scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 21. And Matthew writes that as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to your daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a, excuse me, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat upon it. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the roads and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. 
The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read that from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. You know, up until this week, I thought I knew what this passage was about. Because, like, every other mainline Protestant kid, I've been hearing sermons my entire life about how Jesus is going into the temple to, to end the, uh, the immoral practices of buying and selling and trading for, for temple sacrifice. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't say there's anything immoral going on. And if we think about it, if people are going to sacrifice in the temple, they need someone there to sell them a ram or a dove or whatever. I mean, if you're coming from the clear other side of uh, of Palestine, if you're coming from, um, from the sea across to Jerusalem, you aren't going to carry a fattened lamb on your shoulders for the, the 80 miles of the trip. That's unrealistic. And chances are, when you get there, the money you have is going to be Roman money, which you can't use to buy your temple sacrifice, so there's going to have to be an exchange there's, there's nothing in the text, and there's nothing from a, just a, a, a reasoned standpoint that would lead us to believe that what is happening here is immoral. That what Jesus is taking issue with is the selling of temple sacrifices or even the exchange of currency. So what's going on? Well, I think that den of robbers phrase that he is intentionally pulling from Jeremiah chapter 7 may give us some insight. Jewish historians tell us that uh, during the reign of Caiaphas, who was the high priest when Jesus was uh, crucified, that the, the temple was rearranged. That before Caiaphas, there was an area in uh, sort of the outer the outer gardens of the temple where Gentiles who were God-fearing could come to pray and worship. But that during Caiaphas's reign, there had been this uprising of sort of uh, Israelite nationalism, if you will, and that space that had been reserved for believing Gentiles, for worshiping and praying God, it had been transformed into... They had moved the area where the buying and selling had been inside the temple to this place. So what we may actually be seeing here is Jesus taking extreme issue with foreigners being mistreated and pushed out of the temple. 
One of the same indictments that Jeremiah has for the nation of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 7. The mistreatment of foreigners. Or it may even be simpler than that. It may be that once again we see the same sort of scenario popping up that we saw during the time of Jeremiah. That the temple is being seen as this refuge in the midst of wanton sinfulness instead of as the place where transformation finds its catalyst and people are empowered to go live more holy lives outside. But either way, we see Jesus taking extreme exception to the idea that temple practice in and of itself can bring salvation, that temple practice in and of itself can repair the relationship with God. It is not the case that no matter what happens out in the world, you show up on the Day of Atonement and all of it's wiped clean so that you can go out the next day and be sinful again. So you can go out the next day and continue to oppress foreigners, continue to to not care for widows and orphans, continue to be dishonest, continue to steal, continue to engage in adultery, continue to, to, to break the Ten Commandments, continue to break the greatest commandment. The purpose of the Day of Atonement, the purpose of the temple system, the purpose of that sacrificial rite is the transformation of the people. It's not just to absolve of sin so that you can go and start refilling your sin bucket. It's to empty it out so they can be filled with righteousness. If we see praying for forgiveness as a way to just keep ourselves under the threshold of of being so sinful there's nothing for us, instead of as a way to transform our entire lives, we've missed the point. Let's also explore this idea of the way nationalism can get in the way of loving and serving God. Can get in the way of being transformed. Because if what Jesus is truly upset about here is that Caiaphas has taken this area that was meant to be a religious refuge for those who were outsiders and has instead just made it part of the machinery of the, the, the temple's religious practice. And that Jesus' indictment upon that is that 
this space that is supposed to be a house of prayer, this space that, that is designed for worship, that is designed for including those who are out from the outside, that the changes that have been made have turned it into this den of robbers, have turned it into Moss Isley Cantina, have turned it into the island of Tortuga. then how much more so is it true for us when we fall into patterns of idolatry around our own region? You know, there's a meme that's floating around the internet. You know, it says... We can't be spending one more penny until every homeless veteran in the United States is cared for. Why can't we do both? Right? Like, like there is a, a problem when we are finding ourselves so tribally affiliated that we don't want to bless those who are outside if someone who we think is inside isn't doing good enough. We have brothers and sisters in the Christian faith in every country across the globe. Every single one. For us to think that there is something especially holy or righteous or inherently better about this place where we were fortunate enough to be born and that the rest of them are somehow inferior to us because they didn't draw the same cards in the genetic lottery. There's something going on in our heart there that we need to pay attention to. Because our brothers and sisters who live in Mexico, in El Salvador, in Kenya, and Nepal, and Iraq, and Canada, and everywhere else around the globe, they are our gospel family as well. And additionally, even going beyond the nationalist overtones, the the religious tones there. If we are if we are uncaring about the plight of others because they don't share our religion, because they don't share our ethnicity, then we're missing the point. If we are not seeking to invite people who are outside to come inside to experience the love and grace and transforming power of God, then we're missing the point. Because as Christians, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who have received the blessing 
in the gift of God and who are our brothers and sisters in Christ and those who aren't yet. Those are the only two kinds of people in the world. There aren't, we don't have enemies. We have brothers and sisters and future brothers and sisters. As Christians, we can't hold on to prejudice or we're missing the point. As Christians, we we can't hold on to hate or we're missing the point. One of the things that I've discovered more and more as I've gotten older is that God is not incompetent and God is not um, God doesn't suffer from low self-esteem. The battles that I want to fight to protect God's honor. The battles I want to fight because I'm, I'm angry and want to stick it to that person who's of a different religious belief are battles that God has never called us to. It's not our responsibility to embarrass those who are not yet followers of Jesus. And if we look at history, Christians who have taken it as their responsibility to embarrass those who are not yet followers of Jesus have led a lot of people to never becoming followers of Jesus. But we have the opportunity to use the disciplines of the Christian faith, not just as a way to to find absolution from sin, but as a way to experience true life transformation so that we can live the way that we have been designed to live into the future. Our faith doesn't have to be that of the robber who uses the church as their sanctuary. But instead, our faith can be one where we are transformed in this place to go and live a different sort of life. I had a um, a mentor growing up who used to talk about all of his spiritual practices um, being uh, the, the way to keep his battery charged. That, that was the language he used. Like, I need to keep my battery charged. I go to church because it, you know, it charges my battery. I wake up and I, I pray and read the Bible because it charges my battery. And I think that there is wisdom in that, but I don't think it quite goes the full measure of what God wants to give us. God doesn't just want to charge our battery. God wants to replace 
our little alkaline battery with a lithium ion battery, and he wants to replace that lithium ion battery with uh, you know, a big honking uh, like Tesla battery, and he wants to replace that Tesla battery with a nuclear power plant of his power and his presence in our lives. It's not just about survival. It is about discovering more and more how to thrive in the world that God has created and the way he's created us to live in it. Our final passage this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 4. And beginning with verse 12, we read these words. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. the end of the day, our hope for transformation, our hope for victory over sin and temptation is in Jesus who has already overcome. The blueprint is there. We have the playbook. We know that it's possible because Jesus has done it. And he offers to us the power to do it as well. You know, we've talked about uh, in the past the importance of conjunctions for understanding the logic of Scripture. We look at, at the, the promise that we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven we can hold firmly to the faith. We can hold firmly because we know that he's been there and has had victory. Therefore, it points us back to the word of God being alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating even soul and spirit, judging thoughts. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. If we want to have victory, we need the word of God planted deeply within us. We need that double-bladed sword to both slice temptation in front of us and to carve out prejudice and sinfulness within us. And this is why we memorize Scripture. This is both why we read Scripture devotionally, why it's, it's part of our daily rhythm, 
is to stop and read Scripture. But it's also why we memorize it, so that when the time comes, when we need it the most, when we need to be at our best, when our best is needed, the Holy Spirit has that resource in our minds to transform our will. So we memorize Scripture. We plant the Word of God within us so that it can grow and bear the fruit of God's kingdom. Let us pray. Most holy and gracious God, we thank you today that your Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. That it will both give us victory from temptation it will give us victory from the idea that, that we can live in any sort of way and then come to you, but instead that you want to transform us. Lord, for that we give you thanks. We give you thanks that Jesus has been there and done that and that we can have confidence that in the power of your Holy Spirit, we can overcome temptation. That in the power of your Holy Spirit, we can take advantage of the opportunities to be a blessing in the lives of others. Lord, we love you. The more that we get to know you, the more we love you. Lord, help us in this task of self-discovery so that we can give more of ourselves to more of you each and every day. And we'll give you thanks for you are truly worthy. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ go near you to defend you, go before you to guide you, go behind you to forgive you, go above you to bless you, and live within you so you may love one another. He lives and he reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and even forevermore. Amen. Amen.